Jesus appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. I want you to imagine a moment that you're there, there in the temple courts watching this scene unfold. You see a small mob of religious leaders march in, bringing this woman to Jesus. Bluntly and without any sense of decorum, they announce her crime, adultery. Now, even in today's more permissive sexual culture, adultery and unfaithfulness are still frowned on. But in Jesus' day, adultery was considered to be one of the worst of all possible sins. Now, there's no question about her guilt here. The evidence wasn't simply circumstantial. The accusation wasn't based on rumor. The text says that she was caught in the act. Now, we know from Jewish regulations that it required two or more independent witnesses. So at least two people were there who saw what had happened. So she couldn't argue that it was all a misunderstanding or deny that she'd even been in the room. She was guilty, she knew it, and everyone knew it. Now there is a great deal we don't know. We don't know her name, we don't know her age or her life circumstances. And we don't know who her lover was, which actually is surprising. You see, the law required that in the case of adultery, both the woman and the man were to be stoned, be put to death. And since she'd been caught in the act, they knew who the man was. So why isn't he here? Well, just like today, there's often a double standard at work. His absence probably isn't accidental. This man, equally guilty, if not more so, was given a free pass, but not her. And so it meant that these men, and they were all men, brought her to Jesus and made her stand before the crowd and asked Jesus what should be done with her. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, the narrator tells us that this was actually a trap. This wasn't an honest question. They didn't care about her crime, and they certainly didn't care about her. The goal isn't justice. It's to put Jesus in a bind. So let me describe the dilemma that he faces. There's really only two possible answers, at least according to them. And the first is that Jesus would forgive her. And if he does, the authorities will accuse him of breaking the law of Moses, of being soft on sin, of saying that adultery doesn't matter. But if he condemns her, 
then he'll undermine his own reputation for compassion and forgiveness and for love and for grace. His popularity will plummet, and it will also get him in trouble with the Romans. Because, see, in that time, the Romans had declared that Jews were prohibited from carrying out capital punishment. So they think they have him. They can't imagine how Jesus is going to wiggle out of this. But, as it turns out, he's more than up to the challenge. You see, more than any other person in history, Jesus has combined compassion and justice perfectly. Now, before we see how Jesus responds, I want to go back to the woman in this story. You see, as guilty as she might be, there is something incredibly cruel about this scene. What these men are doing is so heartless, it makes your blood boil. They have no concern for her well-being. She's just a pawn in their little game. Once they've trapped Jesus, she'll be of no use to them anymore. Whether she lives or dies seems to be of no significance to them. Unfortunately, it's the sort of sexist and misogynist treatment that women have experienced throughout history. This is not the way of Jesus. In words and action, Jesus taught that all people, sinners included, are to be treated with respect, sympathy, and pity. His goal, he said repeatedly, was to restore sinners. His desire was not to condemn, but to heal. But the religious leaders don't share his concerns. In fact, they barely saw her. She is a means to an end. Her sin and her soul mean nothing to them. If they could use her to get at Jesus, great. If not, they'll just kick her to the side of the road. Now, unfortunately, in the 2,000 years since, her story has been repeated again and again. Powerful people have abused and tolerated the abuse of women, covering up things in the interest of reputational management. It's wrong. It needs to stop. Because women are not things. They are like all people, young and old, black and white, male and female, created in the image and likeness of God. And as such, they have great inherent dignity. Now, at this point in the story, Jesus has not said a word. The question still hangs in the air. If Moses condemned us to stone such women, what do you say? And still Jesus remains silent. And then we're told that he bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. So what is he writing? Well, a lot of ink has been spilt over the years trying to guess what Jesus was writing down. Some have speculated that he wrote out the Ten Commandments, including number six, don't murder, and number ten, don't covet your neighbor's wife, as though some of these men were actually lusting after this woman. Or perhaps he wrote down a list of sins, and he may even have made those sins personal, writing down Joe, here's what he did. Maybe one or more of these men had slept with her themselves, or at least imagined that they had. So now Jesus has written all this down in the sand for all to see. But we don't know what, she, what he wrote, and probably it's not important. But here's what we do know, that Jesus looked at her with compassion, and his heart breaks. He sees her shame, her confusion, her broken heart, and he is sad for her. His heart goes out to her. And then he looks at the others who are standing around accusing her, and his anger rises. He sees the cruelty in their eyes, the purient curiosity of the crowd watching a train-wrecked life, and he is angry. And then he springs a trap of his own, confronting the Pharisees' hypocrisy. Now, in all of this, Jesus never denies her guilt, but what he does makes it impossible for them to execute her. While continuing to ride in the sand, we're told that he, they kept questioning him. And then he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Now, it's actually a fairly risky question because you can just imagine somebody, some hothead, who's got a stone in their hand, all ready to pitch it, and decides, okay, that's what I'm going to do. But Jesus knew what, was, what he was doing, and despite their self-righteousness, they had enough of a sense of themselves to acknowledge their sin. Perhaps they, too, had committed adultery at one time or another. Or perhaps they'd heard that Jesus had taught that even lustful thoughts were the equivalent of an actual affair. Or maybe they saw how ugly it had been to trap this woman and to serve their own selfish purposes. Or their hypocrisy in treating her as a thing, not as a person, willing to tear her to pieces in order to trap Jesus. Or the injustice of putting her life at risk while letting the guy go free. Or the callous willingness to condemn her rather than the desire to see her healed and restored to the community. So what happened? Those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Surprisingly, no one argued with Jesus. Instead, her accusers were speechless. One by one, they dropped their stones. Those who had all sorts of words before had no words now, and they walked away. The older ones, it says, first. Why? Well, maybe as they reflected... That meant that they had a larger pile of sins on their consciences. When everyone was gone and only Jesus and this poor unfortunate woman were left, he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. And then he added, now go and leave your life of sin. It's a remarkable story one that perfectly combines morality and grace. He rescues her from death, and then he says, I don't condemn you, but you do need to make some changes, some big changes in your life. One of the paradoxes of Christianity is that we are guilty, but not condemned. St. Paul said in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are uh, now for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the idea at the core of this story has sometimes been misunderstood. One misconception is that it costs nothing to forgive, and that's not true. Forgiveness always costs something, and forgiveness for Jesus cost even more because it cost him his life. Another misconception is that forgiveness is the same as tolerance, that being forgiven means we just don't care, we're indifferent. But forgiveness to sin doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that God is indifferent to acts of wrongdoing. Sin matters. But Jesus chooses here to set that aside, at least for the moment. Forgiveness also doesn't mean that there won't be sanctions. Justice may require appropriate punishment. The process needs to be handled with the goal of restoration and healing. That's why Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. Now, this can be hard to do. Hard because sin has real consequences. Hard because it's easy to be misunderstood. If you're the one granting grace to someone, granting them a reprieve, showing forgiveness, showing grace, you may be criticized for the very love and grace that you're showing to someone else. That's because often when someone makes a big blunder, everyone turns on them. Once a Twitter mob condemns someone, it's over. Something important that we need to consider and this is really, I think, pointed out here, is it is important for us to consider how to treat someone who, like her, 
has been caught up in sin. Far too often, even in our day, we rush to judge those who violate whatever standard, moral or social, that we hold dear. It's the attitude behind the moral condemnations of the right and the cancel culture on the left. As we see in the way that this story ends, Jesus did care about righteousness, but even more, he cared about a person. Jesus' first attitude towards someone who made a mistake was pity. And yes, he confronted the sin when he saw it, but his immediate impulse was, what can I do to help her? How can I help her move toward wholeness and healing? Some have drawn from this story the impression that Jesus forgave lightly and easily, that sin didn't matter, but that's not true. Jesus deferred punishment, but he is, and he wants to be, the God of second and third and fourth and 24th chances. But it all starts for him with loving the person. Years ago, I heard about a pastor who had a massive and very public failure. He lost his job, and frankly, he should have. But what happened next shouldn't have happened. He was abandoned by virtually everyone that he knew. He was kicked out of a small group of fellow pastors. He asked, can I just be with you? I need you in the midst of this, his biggest failure. Vicious gossip was passed on from one person and another. And along the way, what he had done was exaggerated beyond anything that, he had, that had actually happened. And yes, he failed. And it was not as though he should have been restored to his job at that church or any other church, at least not for a very long time. But where was the love and the grace? Later, I heard that he had one friend who didn't abandon him. He was a business owner. In fact, he hired this pastor. Many criticized him for it, but he felt it was important not to abandon his longtime friendship. He agreed with the consequences that had already taken place, but he didn't agree with the condemnation. Jesus wasn't soft on sin. Go, he said, and sin no more. But what he exhibited here is that grace is available no matter what we've done. When we've experienced the grace that God offers, it inspires us to obedience and to growth. Jesus came not just to save, but to transform. You see, Jesus didn't say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. He said, I don't condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. And the order is important. I don't know about you, but the words of Jesus to me are both life-giving and inspiring. Because like you, I blow it from time to time. In fact, I find out over time that I blow it more often than I've even realized. We're all a mixed bag. Now, we like to put people in categories. This group of people are all good. This group of people are all bad. But the reality is that we're all dealing with things that we would rather others not know about us. So when Jesus tells this poor, unfortunate woman, I don't condemn you, my heart soars. And when he says, go and sin no more, I'm inspired. Now, the specific sin that is addressed in this story is sexual sin. And some say today, it's not a big deal, but it is. By not condemning her, Jesus isn't saying that adultery is okay. That's why his go and sin no more is so important. Sex outside of marriage is destructive. God's ideal is best for us, a man and a woman in a permanent, exclusive relationship. It's the design that God has for our lives. When we stray outside of those boundaries, there are consequences. But we also must not condemn. Like Jesus, it's important to get the balance right. You know, it's far too easy to think that you're finished 
If you end up falling into the same trap that she had, you have an affair, or you struggle with guilt over sexual activity that you experienced before marriage, or guilt over involvement with pornography, or even just an emotional affair that begins at work that never progresses to anything physical, but you know it's wrong. It's sin. But we need to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, he took on himself the punishment that we deserve for every sin we've ever committed, past, present, and future. Not just part of it, but all of it. So we need to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers us and then commit that from now on we will try our best with God's help and with the Spirit's power to live the life that God has designed us to live. But sometimes after an experience like this, there's a thought that begins to creep into the back of our minds that our failure is permanent, that we can no longer be used by God. Satan would love for you to wallow in guilt, to think that you're unworthy, stuck forever with plan B, spiritually impotent, powerless to be used by God again. Some would say that Satan's primary objective is to eliminate guilt, but I find sometimes more often, at least in the life of a Christian, that Satan tries to use guilt to make us feel hopeless, that we're disqualified from ever being useful to God again. But it's not true. While Satan accuses Jesus says, I love you, I'll heal you, and I'll use you. The great tragedy of sexual sin is not that it happened, but it's when Satan uses it to strip us of every dream we've ever had for how God can use us. Now, in our Bibles, this story is often printed in italics or bracketed off. And there's a statement that might say something like, the earliest manuscripts don't have this particular text. And that's because it wasn't a part of John's original biography of Jesus. In fact, it wasn't part of any of the biographies we have in the New Testament. But it is an authentic story. And there was a scribe along the way who found this story so moving and so important that he looked for a place to stick it in. And he did. So while the earliest manuscripts don't have it, this is an authentic story that I'm grateful he put in. Without it, we wouldn't have this story that shows so clearly the gentleness of Jesus. A gentleness that isn't weakness, because Jesus isn't telling us to overlook sin. He doesn't forgive without holding us accountable, and yes, sin have consequences. But what we see here is a gentleness that gives us hope that no matter what failure we may be dealing with, there is enough grace from God to cover it all. You see, while each one of us deserves the punishment for our sin, Jesus willingly paid the debt that those sins deserve himself in full. When he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our, this unknown, unnamed adulteress, for her accusers, and for us. It is only in Jesus that mercy and justice come together. Only in him that righteousness and grace are held together. And that should encourage each one of us. Let's pray. Father, if anyone here today feels condemned, may they hear the words of Jesus and experience his love and grace. If anyone feels trapped in sin, may they look to Jesus and experience transformation. And if any of us are ever tempted to judge and condemn others, remind us that your primary concern is that they experience love and grace. May the power that raised Jesus from the dead reign in our hearts and in our lives today, we pray, amen.